moment, all things South American soccer, an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. The Commonwealth Libertadores and Sudamericana reach the critical point of the group phase. And so we take a look at what might lie ahead and which of the big guns could be in trouble. Plus, we take a look at the Under-20 World Cup and at the end of the Premier League season, assess the performances of some of the South American arrivals. As ever, to get through all of this, I'm joined by our experts. Um, firstly, Tom Robinson. Hi there, Peter. Good to, good to speak to you. And even though... A lot of leagues are wrapping up. I'm I'm here at my permutation station, looking at all the you know potential outcomes in the uh, Libertadores and Sudamericana and Under Twenty World Cup. So it's it's football doesn't end um, just because things are wrapping up in Europe. No, exactly. I mean, Europe, European leagues might be coming to an end, but there's a lot going on still in South America. Um, Simon Edwards also with us to to look ahead to what is a pretty busy period still going on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, here in Colombia, we're coming into the the playoffs now, and uh, obviously deciding the Libertadores qualifiers. The Under Twenty World Cup is a big deal here in South America as well. And then seeing which players we keep hold of and which players head off to Europe, it's it's a very interesting time. Always uh, this time of year in South America. Yeah, and of course, the big one in South America, the Copa Libertadores, has had a real crunch stage. We're in the group phase still, with only two rounds remaining. Last time we recorded, I think, was just after match day one in the group phase. So there's been a lot of football since then. And we're now at a stage when we're seeing teams either book their place or very close to booking their place in the last 16. And in some cases, we're still a lot of work to do. And I guess that brings us quite nicely onto the two teams that we talked about several weeks ago after match day one. They got off to poor starts, even though they were the two probably overwhelming favourites, the Brazilian giants, Palmeiras and Flamengo. Um, they're probably still rightly among the favourites, Tom. Palmeiras have turned things around to, to an extent since that opening um, day defeat. They're now in position to qualify from Group C with Bolivar. Um, but Flamengo, on the other hand, despite their incredible riches, the squad they have, are still in a, a bit of bother in their group and have a huge match day five game up against Racing Club to be absolutely sure going into the final match so that they, they will be there in the last 16. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see how Flamengo particularly have, have struggled. I think when we saw those opening day defeats at altitude, it was very much with the, the thought process of, well, a lot of the time they've taken a second string team. This is one they're just going to take on the chin and they should be fine. And even going into this last game week, I think looking at Flamengo against, um, um, against Nublense, even though they're away, you kind of thought, okay, this is the game where they they probably pull away and and Racing and Flamengo take control of the group as as you would have expected before the tournament started. But um, yeah, the fact that they've dropped points away in Chile um, means that they've really got a bit of a fight on their hands now. Perhaps the one thing that's going to um, benefit them is the fact that um, Racing are all but qualified. So perhaps... The, the Argentinians will, will say, okay, we don't need to go as hard. We can maybe rest a few players and, and that might play into uh, Flamengo's hands. You'd think that they've got enough quality anyway to, to get through that group. Um, but certainly not having it 
um, all their their own way so far. And um, I think just looking at that Group A with with Racing doing very well, it's it's interesting to see how that they're doing a lot better on the uh, continental scene um, rather than the domestic scene there as well. So some teams that perhaps are doing a little bit better than expected. Certainly, Nublense definitely after um, you know the the start they had weren't expecting them to really be giving Flamengo a run for their money. And they've got a huge game against Alcas coming up. I think if they can, if they can win that, that's going to take it right down to the final day. And and perhaps, perhaps we might see um, a bit of a, a shock early doors, but I, I still back Flamengo to, to get through these, these next couple of games and get enough points and, and get through. So um as as much as it's perhaps more interesting than we'd expected, um, you know, I think there's still a lot of football left to play at the moment. And just finishing on Flamengo, then obviously they they're one of the teams that made changes after their poor start. Jorge Sampaoli has come in as coach, um, and and hasn't really got them clicking as yet. They're still very inconsistent. There've been some pretty poor results in his time there. Um, do you see Sampaoli as the man to, to lead them out of what's been a tricky start to 2023 and potentially on the road or back on the road to lifting the Libertadores or, or do you have some reservations? Yeah, he's, I mean, certainly when Sampaoli first broke through, I was a huge fan of his, but I think now he's he's kind of riding on past achievements, the force of his perhaps questionable personality. Um, I think that, this is a Flamengo side that's got a ridiculous amount of talent in its squad. And I think ultimately that's going to be uh, a bigger factor than perhaps um, the manager in charge. Um, he's often the type of manager that needs a bit of time to get his ideas across. So perhaps given that we've still got you know a long, a long time to the latter stages and uh, of this tournament, perhaps they'll be able to drill in some of his ideas there, but, um, at the end of the day, I think that that quality um, that they've got throughout their squad, you know, you look at um, Gerson coming back in, Vidal, Darius Quieta, um, obviously Gabriel Barbosa up front. I mean, they've got tons of uh, players that would, would get into any squad on the continent um, that are just sitting on their bench um, and some fantastic youngsters like uh, Matheus Franca as, uh, as well. So. Um, I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be semi-finalists at the very least. Whether Sam Powell is the man to, to get, get them winning the title, I've got my doubts. But, um, you know, a lot can happen in this tournament. So I'll, I'll stay uh, firmly sat on the fence here at the moment. <laughs> um, Simon, the, the other thing that we mentioned at the outset, I think like most people looking at really the two, the big guns in, in this tournament over recent years, Flamengo one, Palmeiras the other, they too suffered defeat early in the tournament. Tom mentioned it there, the, the kind of caveat there with the defeat being it was away against Bolivar, a really difficult away game for anyone in the tournament. They, on the other hand, have turned things around with three straight wins since then. And now when you look at their group, they've got two home games remaining. They're, they're basically there anyway. Um, are we now looking at Palmeiras in the same light as we were at the start of the year? Or is there still now some reservation about their title credentials no I think I think they're back on track I mean I think uh, we had similar thoughts early in the season obviously the Brazilian season doesn't start 
straight away you've got the the state championships and it's 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 kind of a slow little start leading to the to the competition and sometimes that could mean in the Libertadores they're not quite at the, up to full speed um, and we've seen the Bolivar are actually quite good <laughs> they got some big results so far so again that is also a factor but no I think I think I have very different feelings with Palmeiras and Flamengo at the moment I think with Palmeiras there's a good balance to the side um, it kind of makes sense they've got some really good youngsters coming in the first eleven is strong. Um, whereas with Flamengo, it kind of feels that it's 15, 16 internationals there. And it just kind of feels to me a little bit like the Flamengo we saw seven, eight years ago, where they just bought the most famous players they could possibly find, the most famous manager they could find, and just hope everything works. Whereas over the last you know five, six years, we've seen them with a very smart tactical approach, very good players, but kind of the right players and not too much overlap and... For me, they've just kind of there's just so much there, and it's get such a um, a demanding or potentially divisive manager in Sao Paulo to kind of keep all of these big egos in check. It just it feels like it's either going to work or it's going to completely blow up in their faces. So it's going to be really interesting to see. Whereas I don't get that feeling with Palmeiras. I think Palmeiras has a good eleven. Obviously, some incredible youngsters coming through as well to kind of to, to follow them. But it kind of feels like there's a natural order to to work the way they're set up. Um, and, I, and I think Palmeiras still have that, that that ability to manage a game, that ability to kind of get the best of what they have. Whereas Flamengo, it still kind of feels to me that they're way off of some of their parts and it can potentially blow up and they can potentially see them, you know, go on, go on a nice run. But I think Flamengo is the one to watch. I think Palmeiras have overcome that, that, that bump in the road and looked like they're on a, on a good track. But I think Flamengo a potential explosion is still there uh, for me. But I think Palmeiras are on, on their way to, to looking like real contenders again. Yeah. I mean, Brazilian teams in general were the ones that we were looking at as they have been over the last few years, really pretty dominant across the, the continental competitions. Um, there's no real reason to, to change that idea in this year's Libertadores. But we're perhaps out looking now outside of those two, particularly what we've seen so far in the group stage. And Simon, Fluminense have probably been one of the most impressive teams in the tournament. They're coming off a defeat. Again, though, we're talking about a defeat at altitude against the strongest. But otherwise, there's been some very good performances. And of course, the uh, the real highlight among that, a 5-1 win over River Plate to put them in control of their group. So um, despite not having the historical success of some of the other Brazilian sides in this competition, um, they could be one to watch this year. Yeah, I think already they've made lots and lots of headlines, not only for the fact that they're getting good results, but but the way they're doing it. You know, it's it, it, uh, Denise, the manager, has um, introduced a system which is is very, it's not based upon positional play. It's not based upon a very solid uh, kind of set structure. Um, it's about, it's about um, interchanges. It's about, you know, passing lanes. It's about Ganso being kind of the orchestrator in there. It's, it's really, really nice to see. And then obviously, with Herman Gano up top, he's, he's got almost a goal per 90 since he's moved to Brazil. Uh, it obviously helps if he's got a great goal scorer. But it's just that really sh- really smart pass and move football. It's it's the kind of opposite to Pep Guardiola. And it's you know become a real point of discussion in Europe to kind of see that there's different ways of doing it. And it's a, it's a, it's a system that's based upon kind of the instinctive uh, quality in Brazil and the the, innov- uh, the um, the creativity and improvisation, but it's also kind of 
putting things in place. So it's really interesting. It's, it's dynamic. It's quick. There's pace out wide, but it's not get it to the winger and just run. It's one, two, three sharp passes and then work on opening. So it's really, really nice to see. And then obviously with a great goal scorer at the top, Fluminense, I think probably the most interesting team in the Libertadores so far. Um, just to, the way they've taken a very different approach. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly one of the teams I think we mentioned back on match day one as one of those to look out for. And, and Tom, you, you were mentioning that nice mix between some good young players, some of the older players that Simon mentioned there, like Gansor, still lighting up the tournament. Um, kind of whipping around the rest of the, the Brazilian side who perhaps are still very much up in the mix in their groups. We've got Internacional leading their group, but in a, in a pretty tight group, or certainly a three-way battle there. Um, we've also got the two Brazilian sides at the top of Group G, Atletico Paranaense and Atletico Mineiro, and then Corinthians, the side that are actually really struggling in their group and look in danger of potentially crashing out pretty early ahead of a massive game away to Independiente del Valle, really to stay alive. So um, it perhaps hasn't been the plain sailing that many anticipated across the board for Brazil so far in the Libertadores. Yeah, I think um, we're, we're used to pretty much every Brazilian side getting through the group stages, but there's definitely big chance that we, we lose one, maybe, maybe a couple. Um, Corinthians at the moment looking probably the most in danger because they they haven't impressed at all, neither in, in the tournament itself, I think just with one win against Liverpool, um, and they've been poor domestically as well. It's not one of these sides that have, um, are doing well domestically and, and just haven't, hasn't clicked in the tournament. They're on all fronts. They're, they're not looking great. I mean, I think last time I checked, it was only sort of one win in their last 10 and that was a sort of Copa de Brazil game. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not looking good for them, especially in this group where, um, you know, Argentinos juniors have been better than expected. Independiente del Valle, we know their their quality. Um, I mean, if anything, they, they've probably got Liverpool to to thank with that surprise one nil win against them, uh, the Ecuadorians. So there's still enough to play for, but you just don't see where um, the goals are going to come from, um, and they're just not looking. Yeah, they're not looking impressive in in, in sort of any aspect. Um, certainly, Group G with Atletico Paranaense and Mineiro two sides in there, um, very tight. Um, and Mineiro sort of played themselves back into a bit of form and are doing well uh, domestic, uh, domestically as well. So that one's all all to play for. You know, we could quite easily see them both go through there, but Libertad um, are, are doing well, um, who, yeah, who are surprisingly um, good, <laughs> good away from home um, in a sort of, bizarre twist when usually you'd, you'd back your your home form to, to, to get you out of there. Um, so yeah, it's it's l- still looking very interesting. Most of the groups and, and most of the teams are, are still right in it. And there's very few groups, probably group C being the only one where it looks very clear cut at the moment. You, you know, you'd, you'd certainly back Fluminense to be be through at the moment, and I, th- I think certainly in in that group, it's it's more the more uh, the the focus has shifted to another big side that that looks like they they could potentially um, crash out if if they're if they don't get some results quickly in, in River Plate. Um, so that's been another of the the huge storylines. Yeah, I mean, 
after Brazil, obviously most people are looking at the Argentinian clubs to, to put together something of a challenge and, and we'll come on perhaps to another nation that are having a good year, which Simon can talk about at length. But before <laughs> doing that, as you touched me there, um, Tom, River Plate are in, in trouble in their group. Um, bottom as things stand with just four points and they play Fluminense next at home, but it's, it's already a must-win game. I mean, the unthinkable happens and they were to lose that the strongest were to beat Sporting Cristal at home, then even before match day six, Rivers' hopes of the knockout phase could be out, which would be absolutely incredible, really, to think about when you many were looking at River Plate under Demi Chalis just a few weeks ago when they were going on a great run of results, top of the league in Argentina, and ahead of potentially a transfer window with a bit of money to spend it, as River finally being able to get themselves back into Libertadores contention for real get themselves into that latter stages. So just how much of a shock and how much of a blow to Demi Chalice and River would it be if this all goes awry and they don't find themselves there? Yeah, I mean, it would be absolutely huge. You know, you look at this group beforehand and, okay, the altitude's always going to play a factor and we knew Fluminense were going to be uh, good, but I think the, the absolute shellacking they got um, against the Brazilians, I think really was a, a wake-up call to say, okay, this side's doing well domestically, but Di Michelis, he's still a fairly young and inexperienced coach. And, you know, the Libertadores is a completely different kettle of fish. It's, yeah, it's interesting to see how perhaps his style of football is the type that works maybe a bit better in a league setup. Um, and he's, you know, as things are currently going, there's not going to be a statue of him with um, you know, <laughs> oversized huevos outside the Monumental if he doesn't win a Libertadores, which is obviously the, the key, um, you know, the, the key thing for any, any side. Um, I mean, I think, you know, they, they really got themselves out of jail even in this game as well, because um, yeah, Armani had a bit of a, bit of a mare um, there for Cristal's first goal and then Borja mi- missing a penalty. Um, you know, there was even a chance for, uh, I think it's Grimaldo at the end to, um, to, to win the game with a shot against the post. So if it wasn't for Aliendo's equaliser there, you know, River could be in even worse uh, trouble than they already are. So, um, I mean, Peter, you, you were at the Super Classico, you, you saw them close up. Um, you know, is, is, is there anything that you think they could be doing better or, you know, where do you think they go from this? Yeah, I mean, I think in a couple of the defeats and, and in that defeat to Fluminense as well, I, I thought Demichelis himself got things wrong. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, they've got a, a talented squad of players. Even on the bench, they can usually draw on some pretty useful players to come on and change the game. And I think at times, Demichelis, in two of the significant defeats, both domestically and then that one against Fluminense, he seems to have almost overthought or tried to be a little bit too clever in what he wanted to do to, to change the game. And I thought against Fluminense, he got it badly wrong when they went down to 10 men and he went even more offensive when I think they were still only 2-1. Um, mm. And by his own admission, in the first half, it had been very even game. I think they were deservedly level. It was 1-1 at half time. They'd created chances. They'd given a good account of themselves away from home against a good Fluminense side. And it all went wrong in the second half. Of course, the red card didn't help, but I thought his changes were suicidal, perhaps is a bit strong, but certainly didn't help the matter. Um, 
and like you say, he's an inexperienced coach. So I think these are things that he's learning on the job. I mean, in his defence, he seems to have been quite open about um, the changes that he made and them not working in, in most of the defeats that River have suffered under him so far. And he's explained them in a tactical sense of what he, what he was looking to do. Um, and it just it didn't work out. So you'd hope that he's learning from those as he goes and, and you won't see a repetition from them. But at the moment, they look a long way from being a side that can go and, and win a Libertadores. I mean, it might still be enough for them to win the league in Argentina. They've got a six-point lead there. Um, but in terms of going on and, and winning the Libertadores, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. And predominantly, you mentioned Armani making a few mistakes. They've been creeping in more and more of late. Um, and defensively in general, they look very, very weak. So if they can get through the group and then go into that transfer window, who knows, they might be able to bring in some reinforcements that could address some of those areas. Um, but it's a little concerning, I think, from a river perspective for many people who would have been hoping that this could be the year they put themselves back in among the big Brazilian sides. Just before we finish then with the Argentinian clubs, Boca, uh, kind of the opposite, I guess, to River in some sense, domestically have been pretty shaky, find themselves now in the top 10 in, in the Argentinian league, but have been a kind of mid-table side. But um, just briefly, Tom, Boca now look on, on course, basically, to go through having picked up enough results as this group's gone on to, to get themselves back into the top of their group and in contention to go through relatively comfortably. Yeah, I, th- I think they're sort of, despite obviously this, uh, well, historic loss to Deportivo Pereira um, and obviously the Super Classico loss, they've been in fairly decent form, you know, you know, as, as far as it's not scintillating football, but in classic Boca form, they're, they're grinding out the victories and they're sort of climbing up the domestic table. And, and I think they'll do enough in this, um, in this group to get through probably as much as anything to do with Colo Colo doing their, their classic thing of, of missing the opportunities to, um, to, you know, to, to capitalize on other people's um, slip ups. Um, you know, this is really should have been a, a group that Colo Colo would have fancied getting themselves out. And of course they, they, may well do so but um no i think despite the the defeat away in in colombia um you know boca are in fairly fairly decent nick but um for everything you say about river you you know you've you've also got extra problems with with boca in terms of you know they they're still not looking like a side that can really challenge at the at the deep end of this uh, Libertadores. There's there's good players there, but I think there's a lot of areas of the squad that could still do with strengthening, um, and you know, still some of the big names not quite hitting their form um, that you, that you want. And we're on, given the benefit of doubt, maybe it is a bit longer to to get his players in and the style of football that he wants to play, but. Um, yeah, looking still quite um, a way off being real challenges in this tournament, um, but at least looking more in a comfortable position in the group. Yeah, I mean, still in a comfortable position, despite that defeat that you mentioned, um, Tom and, and Simon, that's really a great point for us to start with Colombia because Deportivo Pereira on their first Libertadores outing um, have been something of a revelation, I think, for many, because I think most people looked at that group, as Tom mentioned, with Colo Colo there, and I'm sure the Chileans may not 
publicly said it, but they would have looked at that draw and thought, we fancy our chances here of, of getting through in second, which they might still. But Deportivo Pereira have certainly made it very, very interesting. And of course, now have that sort of feather in the cap of beating Boca Juniors, a historic result for them. Um, and we'll, we'll start with them. But I mean, across the board, it's been, or it's looking like a really good year for Colombia with Atletico Nacional, top of their group, um, and Independiente Medellín in a really good position as well in Group B to, to potentially go through. And considering where we've been with Colombian football in, in the Libertadores in recent years, to have the potential of three sides all looking to get through into the last 16 it is it's really a remarkable step up this year. Yeah, it's been very, very positive. I think we'll speak about Nacional in a second, but I think they're a little bit lucky with the group. I think there's probably two teams which are a bit stronger than the other two. Um, but I think, yeah, with Pereira, obviously a huge result. They were the champions in the second half of the 2022 season. Um, obviously a surprise, but they had a good system. Uh, and it's, I think it's a system that transfers quite quite well over to the Libertadores with the the back, the three central defenders, the wing backs, um, kind of three central midfielders that can become kind of a box midfield with two, 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 one, or can be a, a kind of a five, three, two. Um, I think it, I think it's a system that, that means that they can sit in and, and defend, which obviously they had to do quite a lot against Boca, as, as you'd expect. But it means there's also good kind of width in the transition. It means that they can kind of get some pairings up top. So even if they do have to kind of get eight men behind the ball and get the ball cleared, they have two players who can put some pressure on. There's energy up there. They can win it. They can try and retain it a little bit. They can try and hit a counter-attack. So I think I think it's a, a system that they've done well. Obviously, there's been some big changes. I think it's a reflection of the, the size of the club. And it's a good club, a good stadium, a good support. But the fact that they lost kind of their two central strikers after winning the league and qualifying for the Libertadores on a free, I think shows kind of that as, as, as well as they've done, they're still a step behind the likes of Mijanarios who can kind of pick off their players and they're not there. And Pereira, they're doing very, very well. So um, they're not doing so well in the league this year, um, as perhaps you'd expect with the kind of Libertadores commitments. Um, they've made some good additions as well during the season. Even just a few weeks ago, they signed Quintero at the back, who's just come across from Brazil on a free transfer. He kind of adds some grit in there to that defence. And they've recruited very well to kind of complement their system. And they've got a few options as well. You know, there's... there's um, Angelo and Ali Rodriguez who've come in, one's a kind of target man, one kind of runs off and it, it makes sense. You know, what they're doing makes sense. So uh, it's been very impressive for Pereira. Um, they've now got I think, two away games, uh, which is going to be a challenge. But again, I think the fact that they're so organised, so compact, so difficult to break down, um, I think that will kind of suit them quite well. If they can snatch a goal somewhere away, then then they're looking in a decent position, which is, which is very promising. Uh, as I mentioned with Nacional, yeah, obviously, I mean, I think they're already qualified. No, it's already been confirmed. So, great start for them. Uh, Dolan Pavon, a player who's been around for years and years, uh, a player I've always enjoyed watching. Uh, a very, very kind of quick, explosive, explosive in terms of his acceleration. Not quite uh, as quick as he once was, of course, but explosive in acceleration, also explosive the way he strikes the ball. You know? <laughs> there's no messing about, there's no subtlety. He's just going to whack it as hard as he can. Uh, and coming in from wide areas, he's very kind of effective in doing that. And again, I think I think Nacional as well um, are, are not amazing, but I think the setup also suits them quite well in terms of Libertadores, having kind of two or three solid midfielders who can pass the ball a little bit, um, a good good defensive line, um, some good options in goal. They've got two decent goalkeepers. Uh, I think 
There's a little bit of a question for me in the final third, if they're, they're way up there. Obviously, Thomas Angel, the son of Juan Pablo Angel, is um, <laughs> Tom, Tom giving it a nod. Um, is obviously looking very, very interesting. And he's currently with the U20 at the U20 World Cup. We'll maybe talk about him a little bit later. Um, but still, like, again, I think if you're going to the Libertadores with such a young striker, it's, it's tricky. And the other alternative would be Jefferson Duque, who, again, has his moments and creates problems and is disruptive, but uh, again, is, is into his thirties and was never a kind of great athlete, even in his prime. So there's a, for me, a little bit of a question in the final third, but I think they're a solid team. They've done very well, but definitely feels like they benefit from that group. You know, uh, Padronato, a second division side, um, from most of their history. And, and now again, <laughs> um, obviously, you know, and Melgar, I don't think are up to much either. Uh, Olympia are okay, pretty decent, but I definitely feel that's one of the easiest groups. And um, so National have done well, but I wouldn't put them amongst my favourites just yet. But good to see them in the knockout rounds already. And, and how would you assess um, Independiente Medellin's chances? Because I mean, they're in a group which is now just a three-way battle. Metropolitanos still with zero points, so they're out of the question. But it's basically Internacional. Nacional and Independiente Medellín. Do you look at them as realistically being able to take one of those two spots? I mean, they have a home game against Internacional in match day five and they finish, uh, sorry, away to Metropolitanos on match day five and then away to Internacional. So two away games, um, but one of those against a team that against a team that has lost all four games so far. Yeah, look, I think I think Metropolitanos aren't quite as bad as they look because they've been within one goal in most of their games. You know, they they've been competitive at least. So I wouldn't completely rule out a Metropolitanos shock draw, shock win somewhere. You know, they're they're not they're not as terrible as zero points would suggest. Um, but again, obviously, I just think in this group there's a lot of six, seven out of ten teams um, in terms of Medellin, Internacional, and Nacional. I don't think any of them are great. But I don't think even any of them are terrible. So I think they're they're in the mix with with Medellin. Um, they finished last season with a lot of kind of creative central players, and very clearly decided what we need for the Libertadores is pace out wide, and signed four wingers. Um, and I think that that makes sense, you know. And, and again, I think it shows as well how important the Libertadores is for clubs that they'll go. We've qualified with this team, but what we need to compete in the Libertadores is is some more pace, some more transitional speed. Uh, and with Ibarguin, um and with the options they brought in out wide by Dadja, uh, I think that that's given them the kind of dynamism that will help them get results away from home, um, which is, is important. Uh, they're very solid, Medellin. You know, two solid, no-nonsense defenders. The Silver Fox, Torres in front, um, and then uh, and then some big number nines up top, and then the likes of Ricalte, and Miguel Gonzalve as well. Um, so it's it's a team with... A very clear identity, a very clean structure. I think there's a there's a chance they make through. I think they need to win that game, obviously, away in Venezuela. If they win that, then they go into the final game with a clear idea of what's needed. Um, but but yeah, as long as they don't slip up and as long as they get three points against Metropolitanos in Venezuela, then I think they're they're looking in a good spot. I think they could they could defend a lead. I think they could snatch a goal here and there, so that will give them confidence. But it's going to be completely all depending on getting those three points in Venezuela, which we've seen teams slip up before. It can be a little awkward trip, but obviously they'll be favourites for that game. Yeah, so certainly a decent chance that we could see three Colombian sides into the last 16. Um, but anyway, there's two games remaining in the group phase of the Libertadores. 
crunch time for so many of those teams. And we're at the same phase of the tournament in the Commonwealth Sudamericana as well. Um, as we've gone through there in the Libertadores, nobody has picked up four wins from four in the group stage. In the Sudamericana, however, Tom, we have two teams that have perfect records. Um, Fortaleza, one of the Brazilian sides, and the Brazilian sides on a whole doing pretty well in the Sudamericana. That perhaps isn't that much of a surprise. But Newell's old boys, the other one with Gabriel Einstein in charge now, um, back at Newell's as manager. Um, the league form in Argentina perhaps hasn't been incredible. It's been somewhat patchy, but they have this knack in the Sudamericana of, of doing enough and grinding out some, some big wins, four wins, putting themselves right there into the knockout phase basically already. Yeah, I don't think we, we saw this coming. I mean, obviously, Hainte coming in was a, was a massive boost and, and we thought, yeah, maybe this could be the start of something special for Newell's. But as you said, domestic form hasn't really pointed to that, but they've been absolutely loving the uh, Sudamericana. Very exciting 3-2 win away um, in Bolivia against Blooming um, to keep them top of that, that group. And um, yeah, absolutely flying. Defensively, have looked very solid. Um, and yeah, one of the one of the pleasant surprises for an Argentine side um, doing yeah doing well in continental competition. And um, one, um, I mean, not the perhaps not the the hardest group in the world, but um, I, I definitely think Alex Italiano have been better than I expected. Santos worse than. Um, than, than what we were probably expecting beforehand. And again, that was a, a huge uh, result in, in the group, that 2-1 win for Alex Italiano against uh, Santos, which has yeah, just allowed Newell's to, to, to stretch even further ahead. But, you know, they've got some good players in that squad. Um, obviously, Aguirre away with the under-20s at the moment. Um, but yeah, there's, um, there's lots of youth there. Um, and I think... Hopefully, we're starting to see the um, you know the start of something coming together un- under Hainse, and um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a positive sign um, for the red and black side of uh, Rosario. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Fortaleza probably less of, of a surprise in in that regard, um, given the, the strength that they have. Um, but but all the same, Tom, a pretty impressive showing so far in Group H. Four wins from four clear of Palestino currently in second and and well clear of San Lorenzo in, in third. So they probably look like one of the sides, certainly four games into the group stage that you, you could see going deep in this tournament. Yeah. I mean, they, they were a side that I, I fancied making it through to uh, the Libertadores and, and now they've got to be up there as, as one of the, the favourites. They've got Lots of good attacking options. Um, they're a side well backed by their their home fans, and I, I definitely think they're already making a name as as one of the um, potential favourites for this tournament. Probably along with uh, with Sao Paulo, who obviously had a good run uh, last year as well. Um, but yeah, I think interesting to contrast. Um, you know, San Lorenzo who doing much better in the league than they ordinarily do, but um, really struggling. And, and once again, a, a big win um, for the, the Chilean um, side this, this week with, um, um, yeah, 
them getting that big 5-1 win against um, Estudiante de Merida away. And, and now it's, it's an absolutely huge crunch clash uh, between the two of them to, to see who's, who's going to get it out, um, out of the group in second place. So um, yeah, definitely uh, nice for the, uh, the, the Chilean representation to have, to have something to, to potentially cheer about because it's, it's not been that great for them um, in the, in the last several years. No, it hasn't. I mean, in San Lorenzo, I think even in the league where they are going well in Argentina, as has been the case in the Sudamericana, their, their lack of goals is is really mm. becoming a problem. I mean, when you look at that group, Fortaleza have scored 15 through their four games. San Lorenzo have scored three. And it's a similar tale when you do their comparison across the other teams close to the top in Argentina. San Lorenzo with less than half the, their, their rivals and just unsustainable, unsustainable really when you're going to be putting together a challenge. For, uh, for any of those tournaments. Um, before we get some of the other Brazilians, Simon, one of the other teams going really well, not quite with a perfect record, but certainly going well in their group. And what was on paper a really tricky group as well is Missionarios, when you consider they're in there with Defensius Dissier, the champions from the Sudamericana just a couple of years ago, America Minero, a Brazilian opponent, always difficult. Um, and Peñarol, the Uruguayan giants, but it's Missionarios leading the way with just two games to go. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking good. Uh, and I think what I like about Mijanadis at the moment is they have uh, an experienced core of players. But they're starting to bring some really good young players through. Obviously, Oscar Cortez is one of the stars of the under 20 World Cup at the moment, and he's been doing very well without him at the moment. But straight away comes in Beckham David, um, who, uh, uh, yeah, it's not a typical Colombian name, but I wonder where the inspiration came from. Um, and he's looked he's looked very good already. There's There's... Spear, there's you by Spear. Why there's some really good young players. They've they've been doing a lot a lot of recruitment from Buenaventura in the Pacific Coast, bring them across the Bogota. Um and it's been really, really successful. And that's been kind of the core to their success, as well as some smart recruitment. Um in attack, for example, they you know they brought in some experienced guys and it's just a really nice balance. They have a good system, uh they're doing very well. So yeah, no, it's it's more positive news there on Mijanarios. Uh, and I think they're a team that's that's well suited to have a decent run in the Sudamericana. They're not quite limited to this level, but this is this is kind of a, a competition where they can really probably compete into the knockout rounds and, and make a make a bit of an impact. Yeah, and outside um, the other Brazilian sides who are kind of leading their groups, we've got one other nation being represented well in the in the Sudamericana. Guarani, Simon, atop of Group B, leading Huracan, Emelec, and Danubio there. Um, it's a pretty tight group so that they're certainly not done and dusted in terms of booking their place in the last 16, but Juanani are, are going well um, and it's certainly well placed to potentially cause what would still be a bit of an upset if they were to find themselves into the knockout phase of the Sudamericana. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that, that's, a, that's a decent group as well. You know, Emelet, Danubio, they're, they're, they're good teams for the can as well. So I think... Um, it feels like a tight one for them, for, for them, but for them to see them at the top is, is impressive. They're not they're not Minos Guarani, but obviously they're not one of the biggest clubs over there. So it's a, it's a good showing so far, and obviously they're well placed to potentially uh, to sneak their way through. Yeah, I mean, considering they they started the group as well with a four one defeat away to Huracan, um, even more surprising. And I mean, that's probably the, the one bright spot in the last few months for Huracan. That result, I mean, the results otherwise have been absolutely appalling. They've, falling off a cliff in Argentinian league um, and really struggling now to, to kind of hold that form or any kind of form in the Sudamericana, which would give them 
something to cling on to, uh, perhaps in the second half of the year. Um, so, and then otherwise, Tom, we are looking across the groups at, to a certain extent, um, some Brazilian dominance. You've got Botafogo on top of Group A, Red Bull Bragantino on top of Group C. You mentioned Sao Paulo, they top Group D, um, Goas uh, top of Group G. So it's perhaps in the Sudamericana where, again, we're seeing that strength and depth across the Brazilian league in terms of the teams that they're able to put forward to these competitions that some of these teams finished sort of mid-table in the Brasileirão, but it's still more than enough to be very competitive against the rest of the continent in the Sudamericana. Yeah, it's a bit of a new development, really. I mean, we've seen Brazilian sides go far in this competition, but as you said, the strength and depth that they're showing this year really is just hammering home that that advantage that the Brazilian um, league has at the moment. I mean, I th- think it's you know right to to highlight Botafogo. They're top of the Brasileira at the moment. They could you know realistically have a have a, a really good shout at this tournament as well. So um, yeah, I mean it's it's good to see some some interesting names in there. And you know there are you know there's that many Brazilians going through. They're going to have to knock each other out eventually. So maybe that's some hope for everyone else. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's always a great tournament. I mean, uh, I'll just have a quick word on just how badly Peñarol are doing as well. Um, mm. You know, they won the Apertura in, in Uruguay quite quite handsomely. You know, they they looked like they had a really good strong squad. They've got a, a a great core of young players coming through, and not just finishing. Well, it looks like they're going to probably finish bottom of uh, Group F there. You know, there's no shame in that because it's a it's a very competitive group there. But just the manner in which they've they've lost all four games, conceded 13 goals, which is very un-Uruguayan, um, only scored three. Um, really, really shocking performance by them. I think um, as as much as you know, we've highlighted the good teams. It's it's worth mentioning how bad they've been. And also, we can't not mention, unfortunately, some of the um, the racist abuse that happened in the Gimnasia versus Santa Fe game as well. Um, Hugo Rodriguez calling that out. And obviously, that's something that we've seen across um, football with Vinicius Jr. and his tra- um, troubles in Spain there. So really, um, you know, South America, not immune to that. And um, certainly some regrettable um, scenes there, which hopefully will be dealt with. Um, no, I'll maybe not put too much money on on that being um, you know swiftly resolved, but you know something that that definitely needs to be looked at by uh, Conor. Yeah, well said. Um, like you say, I'm probably not hold my breath on on how or, or certainly or I won't be uh, too expecting on how harsh the punishments will be, but we'll leave that in the hands of, of Conor. Um, but like the Libertadores, the Sudamericana really entering that critical phase of the group phase two games remaining next week those match day five games will be and then at the end of june um the final round of the group phase to to solidify our last 16 and both of those tournaments when i'm sure we'll be back looking at that field um and having a better idea of exactly who we fancy going all the way come the end of the year um the other tournament going on at the moment that we did mention earlier uh, the under 20 world cup of course uh, taking place in Argentina, and it's been a very, very good tournament so far for South America. Uh, five teams all through to the last 16. Um, the best performing 
zone in the in the world. Um, and Simon, some some great performances so far from the South American teams. Yeah, it's been it's been very positive uh, across the board. Um, we we looked at the under twenty South American championships, and it's always difficult to judge when you're within your own confederation. Kind of how will these sides compete? Uh, there were some positive signs and perhaps some concerning signs, but. We needn't have worried. Um, looking good so far. Obviously, Uruguay coming through second place behind England in Group E. Uh, we saw Brazil top Group D ahead of Italy, which is which is impressive. Obviously, just goal difference there, but, but that's very impressive. Colombia, lots of late goals in their group, but they've come through a, a group with ahead of Israel and Japan. Ecuador finished just behind the USA, but scored plenty of goals and showed some really interesting football. So. Uh, lots and lots of positivity. Argentina as well, top of their group, although maybe a little bit of an easier group for them. But, you know, so <laughs> you can only beat the teams in front of you. Um, and they had Uzbekistan, New Zealand and Guatemala. But, you know, nine points is nine points. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, definitely, definitely very positive. And we've got all of the, the round of 16 games coming up, um, probably the day you hear this pod, if not, if not yesterday. <laughs> but Colombia against Slovakia, Brazil, Tunisia, Argentina uh, against Nigeria. Gambia, Uruguay, and uh, South Korea, Ecuador. So uh, some interesting games. I mean, Tom, what are your thoughts in terms of those ties? I think you've got the odds over there, right? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just say, you know, Uz- let's not uh, turn our nose up at Uzbekistan, Asian champions. So, you know, um, Argentina, you know, you can debate whether they should be in the tournament or not, but um, thanks to a cheeky tapia masterclass, then, you know, they're there and, and they're doing well with a, with a very uh, changed um, side and um you know yes they've now got a proper um challenge in the face of nigeria um argentina and nigeria have a have a long history and i think a lot of people over in argentina were were cursing uh, their television screens when they saw that they were up against uh, them uh, yet again and obviously a side with a fantastic record at youth level and okay they came third in their group but they were level on points with italy and brazil you know that could have shook up absolutely any which way and I think that they have the the potency that, that could really cause Argentina some troubles so even though Argentina you know got their three wins um, and Pinnacle has them at 1.574 to, to win the game outright Nigeria on a 6.1 which I you know think would be a pretty pretty uh, good little uh, bet you know to, to make there to, to, to maybe plump for Nigeria there's that could be a, a profitable one um so yeah yeah and Argentina 1.288 to just qualify um yeah be that win or on penalties so definitely um, pinnacle think that Argentina should be should be getting that but I think it could be a little bit um, a little bit closer um, than than perhaps it might seem um Hopefully, some more Luca Romero magic will will get them through, but we'll we'll have to see. Um, yeah, and other than that, um, I think the um, Ecuador versus South Korea game has the potential to be quite a close one. Um, Ecuador two point zero six to win, uh, South Korea three point six, and a draw is three point four zero zero. So again, I think that could be for all of uh, Ecuador's goal scoring exploits against Fiji. I think, you know, South Korea are quite a, a, a tight side and don't give up too many goals. And if you look at the other games that Ecuador played, they, they were a lot um, narrower in, in the margins. So um, I think perhaps 
that one, a draw going to extra time could be, could be a little, um, odd, uh, odds to have a look at. Um, and then you look at the other three games, um, you know, the three teams that really impressed at the Sudamericano, uh, Colombia, as you said, it's been narrow. There's been some late goals there. Um, but I, I think, um, a deceptively hard group, you know, Senegal finishing bottom of that side, uh, that, that group, um, says a lot because, you know, they've got some really good players there. Um, but now against Slovakia, I think Colombia should comfortably win that. And Pinnacle agrees 1.429 for Colombia to win outright and 1.185 to, to qualify for the next round. Um, Brazil, despite having to be made to work pretty hard, they've now got Tunisia. Um, 20.350 if you fancy a bet on the Tunisians. So I think it's pretty obvious to, to go for Brazil at 1.128. Um, you know, might not make too much money out of it, but it's a, as, as good as a sure thing in this uh, round. Um, and then Uruguay, I think, is another really interesting one because they have not been anywhere near the level that we saw in the Sudamericano. Perhaps that's because there's no Alvaro Rodriguez up front. Um, but it might just be a case that some players are not in as good form um, as, as we saw previously. Um, and Pinnacle has them 1.689 to win against Gambia. Um, but Gambia have been one of the surprise packages of this tournament. Um, yeah, they're very dangerous going forward. Um, Pinnacle has them at 4.910 to win. Um, so it's a little bit closer than some of the other um, odds that we've been looking at there. But um, I think uh, Uruguay out of form against um, a very confident Gambia um, could be one that's that's a little bit closer, even even if the bookies have got Uruguay as favourites. So um, hopefully we'll see five uh, teams through, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if we had a one or two casualties. Even though I think all certainly Uruguay, Brazil, and, and Colombia are all good enough to win this tournament, and Argentina have shown big improvements from um, f- from the Sudamericano. I mean, it'd be hard not to. Um, and Ecuador have have talent there as well. So um, I, st- I still think, even though it's obviously, as you mentioned, hard to judge um, when you're just looking at one confederation, given that we've all watched numerous editions of the Sudamericano, it really felt like it was a strong core coming out of this um, compared to other years. And um, yeah, I, I do think there's 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 a lot of hope for the South American nations. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. Before we wrap up then with the Under Twenty World Cup, because I'm, I'm sure everyone who tunes into the tournament is is usually doing so to try and spot those kind of talents that maybe haven't quite moved to Europe yet, and and, and are there impressing in the tournament. There'll be a lot of scouts also watching the tournament for that exact reason. Um, who from South America, if, if you sort of liked so far during what we've seen at the Under Twenty World Cup, Simon? Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of talent. Obviously, I think uh, if we look at um, if we look at uh, Ecuador, Kendri <laughs> uh, Pais obviously is is a real standout. You know, he's 16 years old and just like running the show. Uh, obviously, already has a move lined up to to come to the Premier League, and you know, he's he's just a really interesting player for Ecuador. So he's obviously won straight away. In terms of looking at the Colombian side. Um, yeah, there's plenty, plenty of options to be honest, um, and you can compare as well because Jesse Asprilla has already made the move to Watford and he's in there. 
And I don't think he's kind of stood up head and, head and shoulders above anyone else in that similar position for Colombia. He's had his good moments. He's had his quieter moments. But I think you can compare him and there's good options. Oscar Cortez, obviously one we've already mentioned, who's just such a complete kind of attacking midfielder, can play as a winger, has the pace to go on the outside, has the creativity, can play as a central midfielder, can play as an eight, can play as a 10. So I think he's he's kind of indicative of that kind of modern evolution of the attacking midfielder that Colombia has been producing a lot of. Um, Diego Luna, again, similar kind of a, was these kind of players who Colombia used to have these 10s who were get on the ball, play the passes, Quintero, we, we love him, but there's a lot more dynamism now with these players coming through who, who could be wingers, they could be 10s, they could be 8s, and they can kind of encompass all of those roles. I think that's really interesting. Miguel Monsalve, again, I mentioned uh, Alexis castillo Manoma as well, kind of a buzzing around as an 8 or a 10. So I think there's good players there. The other one I, I like is um, Kevin Mandija, who's, again, been linked with Premier League clubs and, and big clubs in Europe already. Um, he's like a defensive leader, good in the air, wins a lot of in the air, uses the ball very well, is quite two-footed. Those for me are probably the ones that stand out for Colombia. Gustavo Puerta has already moved on to Germany, but he's been very good as well. It's kind of a leader in the middle. So, yeah, plenty of options there, I think, in terms of Colombia. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tom, what about you? Who stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I definitely echo the sentiments about Pais. Um, I was, part of me was was thinking, of, oh, you know, there's so much hype around this guy. Is he, you know, I wanted to be a bit contrarian, but no, he's, he's won me over. Uh, first time I've had a proper chance to, to look at him. Um, but I also really like Justin Guerrero up front for um, Ecuador. He's, you know, he's a proper number nine. He, you know, he's got that trademark swivel and shoot, shoot on the turn. Um, he's, yeah, he's, I think he's got a lot of interesting attributes that could make him a, make him a really good player. And even Klinger has come in and, and done a lot better than I thought he did in the um, Sudamericano. So yeah, some, some good performances in Ecuador. Um, from Uruguay, the, the player that's probably stood out the most um, has been Franco Gonzalez, the sort of mercurial midget of a um, playmaker who's who's had a couple of goals. I don't think he's necessarily one who's who's going to be high on European radars just because of his physique at the moment. Um, I think the likes of um, Ferrari up front, who's due to go to Villarreal, is um, is is an interesting player. Abaldo's had a decent tournament after not really featuring too much um, in the Sudamericano as well. Um, and then as for Argentina, I mentioned Luca Romero already. Really, really impressed with him and his contractual situation is going to be interesting to follow over the summer. Um, but yeah, Aleko Veliz, I'm just enjoying him more and more. Just such a great header of the ball. Um, yeah, really not a lost art as such, but certainly in this kind of rejuvenation of, of you know, big number nines uh, in the, in the Harland kind of mold um, coming back into, into favor. Um, and I think Redondo has, has, has done very well. Aguirre has built on a, a good Sudamericano as, as well. So, you know, some, some lots of uh, positives coming out of Argentina um, and then yeah, Brazil, Sudamericano champions, um, you know, we know the likes of Andre Santos, Robert Renan, um, Marlon Gomez, all fantastic players. Um, but I think the players that have caught my eye most, I mean, obviously Marcos Leonardo's 
well known. Um, he's he's been scoring goals for a while now, but um, Savio is someone who really caught my eye already abroad, but um, a player who I think we'll see a lot more of. And um, even uh, Jean Pedroso, the uh, the centre back, I think they've finally found a nice partner for Renan and he's also popped up with a couple of goals. So um, yeah, all the squads are super impressive. I, I love Cortez um, for Colombia as well. Puerta's great. Um, Mantilla, I'm not so sold on and that little error in the last game maybe speaks to the occasional mistake that's still in there, but he's obviously got loads of talent too. Um, yeah, I mean, all the squads have got loads of loads of good players and at the end of the day, regardless of what happens in this tournament, um, it's all about how many of these players you can get into the senior setup um, going forward. That's the true success for, for any nation. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's certainly positive signs for all five of these nations going forward in the future for, uh, yeah, for the senior national team. Yeah, I mean, I think finally you make a good point, a point which I thought after the sort of Medicano from an Argentinian perspective, the tournament itself a disaster, but I'm still able, I think, to look at that squad and still think there's a there's a good few names there that I would anticipate to go on and have very good careers and still potentially have a, a big role to play for the the senior side. So that is essentially w- what you're looking to do. Um, and my opinion certainly hasn't changed. Now Argentina with a stronger squad, perhaps doing what we expected them to do in the Sudamericana. For a lot of these young players, the, the the goal after such a tournament is to make that move to Europe. We saw a number of players um, from South America make that move to the Premier League. And with the Premier League season just finishing, um, we will finish this podcast by looking at or kind of assessing the performances of some of those um, who made that move over the last few months. Um, the likes of Julian Alvarez completing his season. Um, Peroni hasn't really made an impact at Man City, but has made that move over the last few months. Carlos Alcaraz relegated with Southampton. Facundo Buonanotti um, at Brighton. Uh, Enzo Fernandez's big move to Chelsea. And Danilo at, at Forest. So, um, Simon, how do you assess the, the kind of influx of South American talent into the Premier League over the last six months and, and looking forward to their development, I guess, into next season? Yeah, it's been, I think, broadly very, very positive. Um, it's great to see as well clubs looking directly in South America um, from England. That's obviously quite a new development. Uh, previously, it was uh, a stop off in Italy, a stop off in Portugal, and then English clubs would look. Uh, the fact that they're going direct and the fact that the likes of uh, Brighton have been so successful in, in doing that, I think really has helped other teams kind of wake up to the potential. If you look at Brighton, you know, most of their best players or most exciting kind of players are, are South American and have been acquired for a fairly low prices. I think that's really given a, a clear example of what, what is possible. Um, and I think it's really interesting, even like someone like Danilo coming in has been, has been a really interesting move to, to spend a little bit of money, but to get someone who is highly rated, who would usually go to, go to a Porto first for a couple of years, to just go, well, let's just do it. You know, other clubs have done it, let's do it. And yeah, for it to work so well, I think it's very exciting. And, and from a Colombian perspective, I think um, the old lad at Aston Villa, I think he's going to come good at, at some point. Um, uh, <laughs> John, uh, Duran, Duran, the striker. I think that, that for me was a really interesting move because what they did is they, they shipped out an older striker who's been most on the bench coming and making an impact. And they brought in someone young who has a big upside. Hasn't really cost them much money, but they've replaced the... Uh, someone you know who doesn't really have a, a lot, a lot to give in the future. With someone who has a lot of potential and, and a lot of 
an upside. So I think it'd be really interesting to see how he does. But but yeah, no, I think it's I think it's been a development. I think it's a positive development. Obviously, it's great for us here in South America to see the players get these opportunities. But also, I think it's it's a way that the likes of Brighton can compete with a Manchester City. You know, in terms of they're not going to get a guy out of Spain. You know, at, who's at that level. But if they if they do the right scouting and they, they find the right players, they can get the guys before they go to Spain. And and that really is how a kind of a lower level Premier League club can get into the Champions League without spending a huge amount of money, as we've seen from you know the likes of Brighton and kind of teams who have got themselves up to the top of the table and, and they've done it with South American youngsters. Yeah, I mean we've seen some great business done from those you mentioned. Brighton have been heavily involved in that when you look at some of those that they'll likely move on in this window, the likes of Alexis McAllister, Moises Caicedo, but we've started to see the signs of next season where they, what they might be able to get from the likes of Julio Enciso and Facundo Buenanote. Um, as a result, we kind of see players making that move, Tom, at kind of different stages of their careers, but there's certainly been some exciting performances at the tail end of this Premier League season to promise a lot more next year. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's why Brighton are, you know, happy to to let the likes of McAllister and probably Kaiseda move on because they know already that they've got these guys lined up. They've been able to give them a bit of experience as well. I mean, I certainly didn't expect to see Buonanotte and then CISO playing this much towards the end of the season. I mean, okay, minutes wise, you know, maybe not that much, but over I think, yeah, certainly over ten appearances for Buonanotte close to 20 for Enciso. That was something that I think has changed a little bit because beforehand you saw Caicedo gently introduced, um, McAllister go back out on loan, whether that be for work permit or, or what have you, but still um, you're seeing Brighton sort of and other clubs not afraid to throw these guys straight in and they're able to make an impact as we saw, you know, Enciso with those fa- fantastic goals, you know, both of those players, I think, are going to be huge. I think, you know, people saying, oh, you know, who are Brighton going to buy? Who's going to be that next midfield player? You know, I think Buonanotte could, you know, maybe not have the, the the impact that McAllister's had straight away, but, and he's obviously a different type of player, more cerebral, um, you know, better on the ball, maybe not quite as good off the ball as, as McAllister was. But, you know, there's a sign there saying now, you know, if you come and you're good enough, you, you're going to play. And I think a lot of other clubs will be looking at that model and uh, and trying to emulate it. Obviously, there might be some hits and some misses. Um, um, but, you know, I think the, the general level that we've seen come in and, and make impact straight away has been really promising. I mean, even though Southampton went down, I think Alcaraz comes out of it with his um, his reputation probably boosted. Um, you know, contributing goals, always showing that that really good mentality of being up for a fight. Um, and Danilo as well, going into a really really tricky situation um, and emerging as one of their one of their better players. Um, and yeah, really difficult to do when you're coming in with a new language, um, a completely new scenario, going from you know all conquering Palmeiras to you know scrapping away for their lives, Nottingham Forest. So. Um, yeah, it's it's really promising. Hopefully, we'll see a bit more of Perone, but um, you know, it's um, his his qualities there for for all to see, and I think it bodes bodes well that um, yeah, the Premier League is 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 taking a proper 
proper look at South America rather than, um, you know, just, uh, yeah, as Simon said, having a look at how they've done in Europe and then deciding to make a move. So, um, yeah, very interesting times ahead for sure. I think, yeah, I think we'll, yeah, just, just with that premium, premier league premium as well. Like one example for me, which kind of gives an indication of what's possible is Brighton sold Cucurella for 60 million, signed Estupinian for 17 million. And now Estupinian is better than Cucurella, you know, and they made 40 million. So I think uh, that just shows what's possible, not only direct with the youngsters from South America, but by looking outside of the Premier League, looking for some South Americans around Europe, you can also uh, sign some great players at a really affordable price and then sell them for 60 million a couple of years later. So, yeah, it's really exciting about what, what's possible with this with this approach. Yeah, and I think that speaks volumes to, to the approach, particularly at, at that particular club in, in terms of looking to exactly what they want from each position and going out and buying the player that suits that. In that case, with Estupinian, not buying from South America, but identifying a player from a club in Europe who they felt as though they could still buy from. It wasn't a, a team right at the top of the league in Spain. They were able to do business. Um, maybe in some other cases, we're not seeing quite such a measured approach. I think Nottingham Forest signing of Danilo probably wasn't quite that. It was more a case of let's bring in a lot of players and hopefully they'll contribute. I don't know how much it was from a from a a data perspective and from scouting and, and more maybe much kind of agent driven but but either way he has been after a slow start a success um so just finally on that subject then um i'll ask both of you if you could sort of highlight one south american player for next season in the premier league that you're looking forward to having an impact um who do you think that will be simon i'll come to you first um ooh, interesting interesting um well i mean i think look i think it would be great to see where moises ends up and if he can continue to build upon what he's done so far because he's he's very likely to be playing champions league potentially next year now obviously he's a player that we've followed since he was 17 years old so i mean that's that's going to be fascinating to see kind of where he does uh, i think that's the case with a few players you know even you know more experienced players someone like bruno guimaraes seeing him in the champions league and seeing what he can do because He's been massively important. I think he's been key to Newcastle's success. So seeing him come in and just run the show in there and seeing him kind of take that to the next level playing international football. So uh, that'll be interesting. Also, someone like Gabriel Martinelli as well. Right? These are not unknown youngsters, but these are players who are going to have their first, potentially first Champions League experience. And, it, and it's great to see. And again, Martinelli, what an example of what's possible in terms of recruitment from South America. You know, uh, an unknown Brazilian who... You know, in the long list of exciting Brazilian wonder kids, he was way down the list when Arsenal acquired him and he's done so well. So, um, yeah, I think for me, it'll be interesting to see kind of these players who we followed from a young age kind of make up, make the step up into the very highest level in, in international club football. And Tom, what, what are your thoughts for the next season? Obviously, Duran will be the one that you're, you're hoping is really going to burst onto the scene. Yeah, I mean, Duran, Duran from Birmingham. You know, it's it's all set up to be. Uh, it's all set up to be good. No, I think especially with Villa getting uh, Europa Conference League, that should give him some more opportunities to to get some game time. And he's been very promising. Still looking for that first goal, but he's um, he's really added something. And I think certainly he's going to be that backup striker to Watkins. So I'm personally hoping that he's going to um, yeah be able to show a little bit more. As I mentioned before, I think if we're talking about uh, a younger, perhaps not as well-known 
player um, to, to the wider audience. I think Buonanotte could be that player who has a real breakthrough. Um, but in terms of, you know, you know, we've mentioned lots of the players there, but, you, you know, you look at guys like Lissandro Martinez having a fantastic first season in, in English football. Julian Alvarez, the, you know, contributing every time he's called upon. Um, I think those, both those players are going to go from strength to strength. And I think, you know, probably Luis Diaz um, at Liverpool is is probably due to, to step up and, and hopefully if he can stay fit, um, you know, you imagine Liverpool are going to come back stronger and, and again, another South American. So, you know, all over the league, you're seeing top South American players at almost every club, you know, even Pacata coming good at West Ham. So it, after a little bit of time where perhaps you didn't see as many South Americans, you know, apart from the very, very elite players in the league, it, it, there's definitely more of a South American feel right across the league now from, you know, uh, every club. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll see some some guys make the move across um, during the summer as well. So it's going to be going to be interesting. But yeah, you can almost take your pick at every club uh, as to, as to a South American who you're looking forward to seeing, which is, yeah, which is good for all, all those South American football fans out there. Yeah, I'm in no doubt that over the next month or so, we will see even more South American players arrive in the Premier League uh, for the coming season. So we'll probably come back to that conversation in a couple of months at the start of the new season and, and kind of revisit that. Um, of course, we'll, as we wrap this up, we're in the middle of the Under-20 World Cup. We've got the Libertadores Cinema de Cana coming your way soon as well in the group phase, wrapping up there. So if you are missing your uh, football fix, then surely uh, South America will be the place to um, keep an eye on. Uh, we'll finalise there then. So uh, Simon, as ever, thank you uh, for your contribution. No, you're very welcome. And uh, if you want some more details on the group stage in the Libertadores, I- I've got an article going up in the next couple of days on the, the Pinnacle website. So go into a bit more details about some of the players and, and uh, some of my predictions. I was maybe a bit guarded with my predictions on the podcast, but I'm a bit more bold in my questions. Yeah, go check it out. And uh, yeah, so it's on the website. What a tease. <laughs> um, and, and Tom, of course, thank you as well. My pleasure. Um, nothing to plug here, but I, I'm sure Simon's deep, deep dive into the, the Under-20 World Cup is, is well worth, um, you know, half an hour of your time. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, well, as always, you can find all the latest odds and the betting insight on Pinnacle.com plus Simon's articles. Um, lots of content from the Twitter as well at Pinnacle and on Instagram, Pinnacle.betting. Uh, plenty of other sports as well there. Uh, please gamble responsibly. Any odds that were mentioned during this episode were correct at the time of recording, but please check on Pinnacle.com for the latest. Thank you for listening and we'll be back very soon with more South American Soccer Insights. <laughs>